everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Oh, I gotta stop saying it like that. I sound mental. Anyways, I am your host, Mandy, and I hope that if you're listening to this in early 2020, that you are having a good, uh, good quarantine, a good lockdown, that you're staying safe. Um, I'm not trying to be too on topic with, you know, current events because I want people to be able to listen to these podcasts at any time. But it's a crazy world that we live in right now in society, so stay safe, stay alert, stay safe, as Gert and Bert would say. <laughs> so before I get into this week's show, as always, I want to give a big shout out to the Podbelly Network and all the other amazing podcasts on there, such as Just the Worst and We're Not Sure Yet, who actually just did a feature on the podcast, which was amazing, and as well as Art and Jacob Do America and All Things Star Wars and Project Reclamation and many 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 other podcasts that are just fantastic and if there's something that you're looking for to listen to i'm pretty sure you're going to find it on there because they have something for every topic so head on over to podbelly.com check them out as well they have shop there now so you can head to podbelly.com shop get yourself a fantastic t-shirt get a nice little pink piggy t-shirt or a fun hat or a fanny pack even if you're so inclined they have tons of stuff I would suggest checking them out Um, so we will get right into today's topic it is something again um, I'm trying to focus on northern Ontario this one is in is from southern Ontario so I mean it's not northern Ontario but it's the same province so I figured why not it's an interesting a mystery that I never had heard of before and I guess maybe if you live in southern or southwestern Ontario it's more familiar to you um, but personally I never heard of it so I thought it was pretty pretty interesting to do some research on to look into and that is the Baldoon mystery or the Baldoon witch it's also known as um, the Baldoon mystery is it's a legend it's a I guess a ghost story from around Wallaceburg, Ontario, which is in the area of Chatham-Kent in southern or southwestern Ontario. And there's a a good quote from William S. Fleury about the event that took place. He said, the the gun balls would come in through the windows and we would take them and throw them into the river. And in a few minutes, they would come back through the windows. So we were satisfied the evil one was at the helm. And he, of course, is talking about some crazy events that took place between 1830 and 1840 in this small town. So the the area of Baldoon, where this was, was a Scottish settlement um, that Lord Selkirk had came over and planned and started um, around, I think it was 1804. So the mystery sort of centers, central centers <laughs> around the, the poltergeist that haunted the family of John MacDonald for three years. Um, John MacDonald was the eldest son of Donald and Flora MacDonald. And that's funny to think of someone named Donald MacDonald. <laughs> and his parents were two of the original pioneers that came from Scotland to Lord Selkirk settlement. Um, John had been there, had, had just been six years old when his family came over, so he was pretty young and grew up on the settlement, you know, made friends, got married, and in 1826 he acquired a farm, and the farm was on lot A of the fourth concession of the land, so it was all, you know, divided up by lot letters and numbers, and that doesn't really mean anything <laughs> to anyone today, but that's where it was, so I guess if you're looking up old records that's where you would be looking for that 
Um, and this lot was particularly coveted by many people of the area that wanted it. And in particular, one elderly woman by the name of Buchanan. And I guess she had, you know, gone to John many times with offers to purchase the land from him, but he always refused. He, you know, wanted the land for himself to, to farm and grow his family on. And he built a large farmhouse on the land and just sort of, you know, took, took up the land, started working the land, started working his farm and went about living his life. But unfortunately, that's not where the story ends, because otherwise, why would we be doing this podcast, right? And <laughs> there wouldn't be any story about it. So it sort of started, I guess, in late October in 1829, actually. And some of the young women of his family were working away in the barn, um, as you do <laughs> on the farm, working on straw, preparing the straw for the animals and such. And suddenly a pole came crashing down from the ceiling. And they didn't really think anything of it because the barn itself was made of logs. Um, its main floor was a ceiling of poles, I guess, that formed a loft open at the top and the ends. And everything was sort of floored with poles. So sometimes, I mean, poles can fall down, I guess, like if a roof tile falls down now or something like that. So they didn't really think much of it and they just sort of, you know, went back to working and just thought that, you know, they would tell tell the men in the family later that they needed to fix it. So after, you know, several more minutes of working, a second pole dropped and they found this strange at this point. They went and examined the ceiling to see like, you know, if there was a reason it had fallen, if there was a reason why the two of the poles had fallen, like maybe something was like shifting in it something was shaking them loose but they couldn't really find anything find any reasons for it and they went back about their work again and just sort of you know kept working away preparing the straw being you know just talkative and conversation and passing the time and then suddenly a third pole crashed and that was sort of it (laughs) it's like third time's the charm right so now them being legit terrified about it they left the barn, fled into the house. And at this point is where things really started to pick up. So that was really the first incident of things starting to happen. And from there, it just sort of snowballed, basically, for this family on the farm. Um, the family began to hear strangers marching through their kitchen in the middle of the night. They would, you know, hear voices and the stomping and get up and there would be no one there. There was unseen persons that were throwing bullets and actual stones through their windows on a daily basis to the point that every window in the house had been broken and had to be boarded up um that and that wasn't just witnessed by them so when visitors would come over they would see this see this as well see the stones and and bullets i guess even being thrown through the windows which is crazy to think that someone's throwing bullets (laughs) through windows um And when they examined the actual stones, they found that they were smooth and damp, as though they had been flung from the bed of the river that happened to run right in front of their house. So they're, you know, still damp river stones that are being flung through their house. And one man who was actually visiting the family happened to be a witness to this occurrence. He was standing in the kitchen and he was hit in the chest by a stone. (laughs) And he picked up the stone, went outside, threw it in the river, And minutes later, the same stone appeared mysteriously at his feet back in the kitchen. Um, Needless to say, he was probably terrified. I would be as well. I mean, (laughs) we were just standing there in the kitchen 
and a stone hits you in the chest and you pick it up and throw it in the river and it there's another stone back at your feet minutes later like that's kind of fucked up <laughs> um so other than just the stones there was um other occurrences fires would mysteriously start all over even on the roof and um william flurry who gave us the quote at the beginning actually had said that he saw the fire upstairs in about 10 different places at once and he had just he lived just up the road from the family so that was something that he had witnessed so with the visitor getting hit in the chest with the stone and William McFlurry and other people actually witnessing it, it's not something that is just happening to the family. There is outside witnesses as well. And that sort of, I guess, leads to, you know, the credibility of it. They're not just making this up on their own. They're, they have people that happen to be actually witnessing it when they're, you know, not anticipating that someone's going to be witnessing it. Um, once I guess that there was actually like a mini earthquake just at the house itself and only their house was shaken and no other neighbors felt it or saw anything um and all the pots and pans were inexplicably crashed uh you know had inexplicably crashed um from all the ceilings and the cupboards and everywhere they'd been hanging and put up and it was like an actual mini earthquake in the house um but just localized to their house at the time and another resident, William Stewart, had said at this, at the time of this trouble, I lived about three quarters of a mile from the place and was present and saw for myself many of the strange things. Mr. Alex Brown, with the others, took a number of lead balls that came in through the window, marked them, tied them in a bag, and dropped them into the center of the channel cart at about 36 feet of water. And in a short time, the ball came back through the window. I was present when the barn was burned and also when a man by the name of Harmon was preaching there. At this time, a large stone came right through the door, breaking down one of the panels and rolled in front of the minister. The stone apparently had come out of the water. A search was made around the house, but no person could be seen. I also saw a loaf of bread move off the table and dance around the room. The owner of the house, John MacDonald, I know to be a very respectable man. So again, there's another witness account of someone seeing everything seeing that the stones are being you know flung at people seeing that people are putting the stones back in the river and the stones are appearing back in the house and to the point of actually seeing a loaf of bread move around the house which again would be pretty terrifying um so i guess with with all these occurrences going on and everything going on that be kind of came a big deal, um, you know, as things are in the times that word spreads when there's weird shit going down and news of this spread pretty far and soon there was people coming to see it. I mean, that's sort of what happens, right? With weird places, people want to flock to it, want to see it for themselves, want to witness it. So soon there was hundreds of curiosity seekers from the area that began to visit the house in hopes of witnessing the poltergeist activity for themselves. And even the Toronto Globe reported the events as they occurred. Um, and so, seeing what was going on, the McDonald's decided to take advantage of the situation. And they decided to start profiting as a tourist attraction. And they did this for a while. You know, with people coming by, they would collect admission, collect fees from them, basically. Charge them to see if maybe they're going to get hit with a stone. And if they throw it back in the river, maybe it's going to appear back to them. And they did this for a while, I guess, until things got really bad at the time, until their safety was really threatened. 
Um, and so here's a quote from another person who had come by. Um, I went with my father to see what was going on at, Bal at Baldoon, for I was very young at the time. We saw a pot rise from the hearth and chase a dog outside and all around the yard. It could not get away from the pot, for it would hit the dog and he would yell and howl with all his might. I saw an old-fashioned butcher knife pass through a crowd of 50 men and strike into a wall with the whole length of a 10-inch blade. This happened in 1830. So there's more reports from people who were going to visit it at the time. Um, I mean, it seems like that's, I guess, like what you kind of do, right? So people would bring their children to come see crazy events. And you would think that, like, when it's getting dangerous that they probably wouldn't want to bring their kids, but... I mean, I guess that's something that people still do to this day, right? Like, people bring their kids to see weird things and don't really necessarily think about their safety at the time. So, they went, um, people went and brought their children to see what was going on, saw the, the crazy events, <laughs> as it were, and yeah, I guess that carried on for a while until, until their safety just started to, you know, be really threatened by, by the ghosts and everything. So, once one specific time, um, after a local Methodist preacher, Reverend McDorman, <laughs> McDorman, um, tried to exercise the spirits, the poltergeist became more violent, and that tends to happen sometimes with exorcisms or you know those kind of things where the the ghost, the poltergeist, just kind of gets more violent and they get upset by it. So, at this point, healthy livestock suddenly began to die in the middle of the night. Uh, horses dropped dead in their stalls. The ox died in the field while still connected to the plow. Hogs and chickens withered and passed away. And the family would awaken in the middle of the night to slow, steady tread of men marching in the kitchen again. Um, Robert Baker, a, Mich a Michigan schoolmaster who had a great interest in the subject of witchcraft, had tried next to exercise the spirit. And he did it by nailing a horseshoe above the front door of the, of the farmhouse and invoking the Holy Trinity. So, unfortunately for him, not only were his efforts in vain, but local authorities prosecuted him for attempting to perform witchcraft. So, he's trying to do something good for this family and basically gets prosecuted for being a witch. Um, Mr. Baker was convicted at a trial in Sandwich and sentenced to a year in prison. The lieutenant governor, however, heard his appeal and granted him a pardon on May 6, 1830. And still, the hauntings continued. Um, at this point, they were becoming more and more violent. The baby screamed as its cradle rocked of its own volition. So, like, unseen hands, unseen ghosts were rocking the cradle of it. And it was said that two men had to hold the cradle for the mother to rescue the infant. So, not only was it being rocked by unseen forces, it was being rocked to the point that it was so violent and so you know like fast moving that two other men had to hold it down so that the mother could actually get the baby out of the cradle which is probably going to be terrifying i mean everything else going on and then your baby's being rocked so hard that you know you can't even get it out of the cradle that's crazy to think of um so guns also went off while no one was holding them and eventually the fires that broke out decided well, I guess they didn't decide, but they, but they increased with more frequency and became harder and harder to put out to the point that the entire home eventually burned to the ground. So you got to imagine that, you know, up to this point, it was probably terrifying. And then I guess they decided to profit on it and then it just became more terrifying again. And 
trying to live with that is probably, you know, a pretty hard thing, especially to do in those times. People don't really know what's going on. They don't really know where they can turn, you know, to, to fight back against this. And they're probably trying to, you know, keep their livelihood, keep their farm, keep everything going. And they can barely even manage their everyday life um, in this. So luckily the community helped the McDonald's replenish their losses after the fire and the family sought refuge with John's brother-in-law while they undertook efforts to rebuild their house. So after that, <laughs> no sooner had they taken quarter when similar annoyances began to occur. Um, after several little fires spontaneously broke out, the McDonald's were forced to seek shelter elsewhere, fearing the brother-in-law's house too would burn. And you can't really blame them, and I'm sure the brother-in-law, you know, may not have threatened to throw them out, but they probably felt like he was either going to, or, you know, in an effort to keep him safe, that they probably should leave. And the thing with, like, I guess poltergeist and that, it's kind of weird for them to follow the people. They usually stay with the house. Um, so, you know, they wouldn't necessarily think that going to stay with the brother-in-law that it would follow them. But, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately it did. Um, so the strange activity followed the family wherever, wherever they went. And for a period of time, they lived like nomads, moving from place to place, trying to find somewhere where they could settle and not be tormented by the spirits anymore. Finally, they gathered up all the old sails they could find in the neighborhood and rigged up a tent to shelter them, basically. But they could not live like that for long, because once winter set in, even the haunted log cabin was preferable to a frigid night in a tent. <clears throat> and Canada gets pretty cold. <laughs> even in southern Ontario, it gets pretty cold in the winter. Um, nowadays, it still gets to like minus 40, minus 20, so... It's pretty bad and you don't want to be sleeping in a tent, especially then because they didn't really have a lot of probably warmth protective gear. So they were trying to figure out what, what they were going to do. Um, after the family moved back indoors, John resumed all efforts to remove the poltergeist, seeking the counsel from Protestant missionaries, native medicine men, and Catholic priests, but nothing worked. Then John learned from a traveler about a doctor in Long Point, which was about a town that was about 80 miles away and it was said that his daughter was able or was said to be possessed with the gift of second sight so basically a psychic reverend mcdorman accompanied john on a two-day journey to the house of dr j.f troiner and upon arrival they implored him to allow consultation with his 15 year old daughter dinah the girl listened to john's miserable story and then retired to her bedroom to read her moonstone. So I guess that was like her stones that she would read to try and use her psychic abilities <laughs> at the time. Um, she eventually emerged from her chambers, exhausted and disheveled three hours later, and reported that an old woman who lived in a long log house sought to drive the McDonald's away from the property because she wanted it for herself. This, said Ms. Troiner, was the source of all of John's difficulties. She asked John if he had seen a stray goose wandering his farm since the troubles had began. After he replied that he had been seeing a strange goose and his flock now and again for some time, Miss Troyner told him that he needed to shoot it with a bullet cast of solid silver for lead would do it no harm. And the girl insisted that the old woman would similarly be wounded and the hauntings would come to an end. He was told to look for a goose that had um, a black head. 
So as soon as John McDonald arrived back home the next evening, he melted a piece of sterling silver into a bullet, just as he had been instructed to do. The next morning, he took a brisk walk along the riverbank until he spotted a flock of geese. And within them, he found one that had the black head. He aimed and hit the bird in the wing, which had broken it. The goose gave a shriek that sounded like a human in agony and escaped through the reeds under the cover of darkness. So after that, the next day, um, John and several of his companions adventured past the long log house um, owned by the elderly Mrs. Buchanan, who had been the woman who was trying to buy the land from him and offered many times but that he had refused. And there they saw the old woman sitting on her porch in a very agitated state, nursing a broken arm. And after that, no more supernatural manifestations disturbed the property. So it seems like it was an old lady who was likely a witch (laughs) that had been tormenting them because she wanted the land for herself. And after she had offered them many times to buy the land and he refused, she decided to take matters into her own hands. As the story passed into history and the eyewitness testimonies from prominent figures lent the tale credibility, um, it sort of, you know, solidified it in the town's history, in the town's fame. Um, Forty years later, Neil MacDonald, John's youngest son, interviewed 26 older local villagers that had witnessed the haunting. He collected their statements and published them serially into the Wallaceburg News. Afterwards, the stories were collected into a booklet and published under the title The Baldoon Mystery, an intriguing story of witchcraft near Wallaceburg, Ontario. The story continued to circulate into the 20th century. In the 1920s, the Northern Navigation Grand Trunk Trunk Route offered day cruises from Detroit to Chatham aboard the Thousand Islers steamship. When the ship passed through Wallaceburg on the Channel Cart, deckhands were quick to point out the haunted house to enthusiastic patrons. The Baldoon mystery soon became one of Ontario's most famous ghost stories, securing a lasting legacy for this little Scottish settlement. So, there you go. There is the tale of the Baldoon mystery. Um, It's a ghost story that I hadn't heard of before, um, and very likely one that you haven't heard of if I hadn't heard of it. Unless you live in Chatham-Kent area, in Wallaceburg, Ontario, and maybe you know of it. So, if I have any listeners that are in the area I would love to hear if you know about this tale Um, I know that there is a plaque in the town that tells the story of the settlement but I don't think it actually tells the story of the mystery or the ghost so you know that would be something to to hear about as well so there's a fantastic little ghost story for you Um, I hope you enjoyed it as well as I did and I again am trying to find more ones to northern Ontario possibly ones you know staying within Ontario or the area could even be you know northern Minnesota or eastern Manitoba places that are close to where I am just thought it'd be kind of fun to do more locally based stuff so even being in the same province as local even though Ontario is the size of like three states in America sometimes it seems because it is one huge province and takes like three days to drive across it but hopefully you enjoyed it and yeah um Come back soon. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast apps. Just look for the podcast. And as well, the Podbelly Network. Check them out at podbelly.com on the internet for all your podcast needs and wants. And you can find my shop at shop.littlegeekloss.com with all my fun t-shirts as well as everything else, you know, for me at littlegeekloss.com on the internet. Check that out as well.